When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey listeners, Isaac Butler here. A word about this episode. Back in June, we collaborated with the Public Shakespeare Initiative to put on a live episode of this podcast at Joe's Pub in New York. Some of the audio you're going to hear in this episode is from that event, so you may hear the occasional clink of silverware or audience laughter. Slate Plus listeners get to hear the complete live episode, which, I gotta say, it's a lot of fun. I think you'll enjoy it. Thanks for listening, and on with the show. Welcome to Lend Me Your Ears. I'm Isaac Butler. For this episode, we're talking about Coriolanus, a play about the rise of populism, the power of elites, and whether or not there's such a thing as too much democracy. Act 1. You'll rejoice that he is thus cut off. Coriolanus is Shakespeare's final tragedy. After he wrote it, he pivoted to the romances, plays like The Winner's Tale and The Tempest, which focus on themes of forgiveness and are laced with magic and the supernatural. Coriolanus is the opposite of those plays. There's no forgiveness to be had, and the play is all about the down-to-earth, nitty-gritty, quite unmagical mechanisms of electoral politics. The text is dense, and Coriolanus might be Shakespeare's least likable protagonist, which, given that he also wrote Macbeth, is really saying something. Maybe that's why the play has never been especially popular. Yet it's hard to imagine a Shakespeare play more relevant to our own recent history than this one. Coriolanus is a play about a power struggle between the patricians and the plebeians. We might call them the elites and the populists, or maybe the 1% and the 99 And those two groups battle for the soul of Rome during a time of profound crisis for the Republic. That crisis and its resolution go like this. It's almost 500 years before the fall of the Roman Republic depicted in Julius Caesar. We are in ancient, mythical times, the early days of Rome. And the common people of Rome, the plebeians, they're starving. All the food has been hoarded by the nobility, that's the patricians, who continue to live comfortably. So the people go on a general strike, demanding food and political representation. And they pick an opportune moment for this strike, because Rome is facing a second crisis, looming war with a rival Italian tribe called the Volscians. The first crisis is solved by giving the people what they want. They get free grain, called the corn dole, and they get political representation for the first time in the form of the tribunes of the plebs, elected officials who represent the interests of the common people and serve to check and balance the Roman Senate, which represents the elites. That second crisis, the war with the Volscians, is solved by this incredibly badass general named Caius Martius. In the first act of the play, he gets separated from the rest of the Roman army and locked in the city of Coriolis, facing the Volscians by himself. 
A few minutes later, the doors of the city open, and Caius comes out, literally covered in blood, having single-handedly slaughtered the opposing army. As a reward for his extraordinary service in the city of Coriolis, Caius is given the title of Coriolanus. The nearly inevitable next step is for him to run for a position as consul, one of the two chief magistrates who rule the Republic. But there's a problem. Coriolanus is outspoken and unwavering in his beliefs. And one of those beliefs is that the people of Rome are idiots and sheep who don't deserve political power or subsidized grain. That's an inconvenient position for a politician to take. Coriolanus reluctantly asks the people of Rome for their support. And even though he insults them to their faces, they give it to him. At first. But the tribunes of the plebs persuade their constituents to turn against him. Coriolanus is enraged. He confronts the tribunes, making it clear he believes the plebeians should not have political power. They goad Coriolanus into losing his cool, and the people of Rome banish him. Coriolanus leaves Rome and seeks out the Volscians, the very same army he was butchering just a couple of acts ago. He then joins them and becomes one of their generals and marches on Rome. The Romans plead for mercy from Coriolanus, but he refuses to give it. Finally, his wife and mother visit him, bring him his son, and beg him to stop the oncoming slaughter. Coriolanus finally relents, negotiates a peace with Rome, and then returns to the Volscians, where he is promptly assassinated. So, is Coriolanus a hero and a martyr? Are the plebeians misled by their leaders? Or are the tribunes, despite their near-total lack of principles, actually safeguarding Roman democracy? This debate about the play's meaning, and thus its relevance to the political process, has gone on for centuries. In Europe in the 1930s, there were productions of Coriolanus which somehow managed to anger both fascists and communists. That anger comes from the way that Coriolanus pits the elites against the common people and portrays neither group with much sympathy. This is a play that can be read as extremely skeptical about the benefits of representative democracy or as a play in which institutional checks and balances are the only thing that stands between liberty and tyranny. We live in a time when the rise of populism in the United States and abroad has caused many people to ask the same questions Coriolanus asks. Questions like, are authenticity and consistency liabilities in politics? What is the proper relationship between politicians and the citizens who elect them? And might the problem with representation by the people actually be the people? Shakespeare explores these questions through plot and character, of course, because he's a dramatist. But he also explores them through imagery, because he's a poet. And so in order to see how Coriolanus explores these questions, we have to look at its central metaphor, the human body, and how it stands in for the body politic. Act 2. Cut Me to Pieces Coriolanus is a play obsessed with the body. Roughly one out of every five images in the play refers to human anatomy, often in quite visceral terms. And all this body talk starts very early on in the play. There's a senator named Menenius, who is kind of Coriolanus's conciliary. 
He's the guy sent to negotiate with the plebeians and end their strike. As an opening gambit in those negotiations, he tells them this fable about the stomach and the other parts of the body rebelling against it. There was a time when all the body's members rebelled against the belly, thus accused it, that only like a gulf it did remain in the midst of the body, idle and unactive, where the other instruments did see and hear, devise, instruct, walk, feel, and mutually participate, did minister unto the appetite and affection common of the whole body. The other parts of the body say that the belly gets all the food but does none of the work. But the belly says they've gotten it all wrong. True is it, my incorporate friends, quoth he, that I receive the general food at first which you do live upon, and fit it is, because I am the storehouse and the shop of the whole body. But if you do remember, I send it through the rivers of your blood, even to the court, the heart, to the seat of the brain, and through the cranks and offices of man, the strongest nerves and small inferior veins from me receive that natural competency whereby they live. In Menenius's fable, it's the belly that does all the work. Sure, it receives the food first, but it digests and sends it out to the rest of the parts of the body. If you didn't have the stomach, the body couldn't function. It's the one doing the real work, just like the Senate. For examine their counsels and their cares, digest things rightly touching the wheel of the common, you shall find no public benefit which you receive, but it proceeds or comes from them to you, and no way from yourselves. The state, in other words, is a body, and each part of the state has a job to do, just as each part of the body does. And the people have to trust that the Senate knows what's best for them. Here's Michael Sexton, who runs the Public Shakespeare Initiative at the Public Theater in New York, speaking at our Joe's Pub event. The body politic is the, is, is the metaphor that he's working to some degree, that we're all in this together, and that it's, we're organically linked, is a lovely idea, that that's how societies could be organized in some sort of mutually beneficial ecology of symbiosis or whatever, so that we're a shared body, that we're dependent on each other and sharing with each other. It's a, it's a nice idea. It's a nice idea, in theory, anyway. Menenius sets out a vision for how society should work, as a well-structured, symbiotic organism where everyone knows their place. The food being digested in the metaphor stands in for several things. It's literal food, of course, and other public benefits, but it's also their counsels and their cares. In other words, it's the Senate's job to consider and think, and then send the results of their deliberations out to the people of Rome. Menenius isn't really offering the plebeians anything. Instead, he's saying, don't worry your pretty little heads about this. We've got your best interest at heart, even if you can't see how. Remember your place and get ready for the war with the Volscians. Here's John Paul Spiro, who teaches at Villanova University. These are people who are starving, who feel no political representation whatsoever, who basically feel as if the existing Roman institutions just simply prey upon them. And then he says, I understand you're starving. Here's a, a cute little story with some political theory buried inside of it. And they listen. And so the play begins with this idea like, 
the proper use of language and rhetoric and a shrewd politician who understands the interests of the people and understands how to break things down in language people can understand, uh, this works, right? If you make good arguments, if you are able to relate to people or at least make them think that you relate to them, they will go along with you, they will stop being violent, they will accept terms and, and approach compromise. And it almost works. The crowd is about to disperse when Caius Martius, soon to be titled Coriolanus, enters to announce that the Senate has voted to give plebeians political power. And he announces it using a very different metaphor. What's the matter, you dissentious rogues, that rubbing the poor itch of your opinion make yourselves scabs? To Coriolanus, the plebeians are an unnecessary annoyance. An itch. Their only real power is to make themselves a problem for the state, transforming themselves from an itch to a scab. And then what's hilarious in the play is that Menenius does this and people are like, oh, very interesting. And then Coriolanus just comes in and says, I hate all of you people. You, I don't even know what he's talking about with the belly. All I know is you don't deserve any grain. As far as I'm concerned, you all should be dead. Everything that the play looked like it might be about has now just been completely ruined. Coriolanus, in turn, immediately shifts from the idea of a harmonious body to the image of a sick one. Coriolanus compares the tribunes to measles. There's an entire argument about whether he's a limb with a diseased part that can be removed or a gangrenous limb that has to be amputated altogether. When Coriolanus betrays Rome and goes over to the Volscians, multiple characters compare it to a disembowelment. There's something... I don't know, there's something about the body that the play seems obsessed with, and the way that it sort of anatomizes the body does seem to sort of point towards a dissolution, a sort of tearing apart. And that's one of uh, Coriolanus' final lines is, cut me to pieces. But what is the source of the sickness? Is it Coriolanus' inability to adapt from soldier to politician? Is it the patricians' disregard for the lives of the plebeians? Or is it giving political power to people who don't deserve it? To figure that out, we have to examine the escalating conflict between Coriolanus and the tribunes of the plebs, a growing fight that threatens to destroy Rome and everyone in it. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Act 3. We have power in ourselves to do it. Shakespeare took the story of Coriolanus from Plutarch's lives. One of the major changes he makes to the story is focusing the plot on Coriolanus's failed run for consul. In Plutarch's version, the election is part of a series of things that drive a wedge between Coriolanus and the people of Rome. Shakespeare enlarges the role of the election, so it becomes an existential struggle for the soul of Rome itself. And through that, he pits Caius Martius Coriolanus against the tribunes, which is to say the patricians against the plebeians. But he also pits principle against pragmatism. 
You see, Coriolanus is a man who is unwavering in his beliefs, even when his beliefs are incredibly unpopular. Here's a moment from Act 2. One anonymous soldier is talking to another about the upcoming election and trying to decide whether Coriolanus deserves their support. They're having a debate about authenticity in politics that feels very familiar today. Faith, there had been many great men that have flattered the people who ne'er loved them, and there be many that they have loved they know not wherefore. Therefore, for Coriolanus neither to care whether they love or hate him manifests the true knowledge he has in their disposition, and out of his noble carelessness lets them plainly see it. Coriolanus is to be admired because flattering the people and condescending to them, the very kind of politics that Menenius was practicing earlier with his speech about the belly, is dishonest. At least Coriolanus is authentic. He's no flip-flopper. He's a straight talker. If he offends you, well, that's noble carelessness on his part. He can't help it. He's just telling it like it is. But this officer's buddy is having none of it. But he seeks their hate with greater devotion than they can render at him, and leaves nothing undone that may fully discover him their opposite. Now, to seem to affect the malice and displeasure of the people is as bad as that which he dislikes, to flatter them for their love. In other words, it may be fine for Coriolanus to be honest about his dislike of the poor, but he does more than that. He goes out of his way to insult them at every turn. His tough talk is a performance just as much as an ordinary politician's flattery. Coriolanus's allies know that his outspoken contempt for the people is a problem. At one point, even his own mother tells him to think of politics as strategically as he thinks of war. If Coriolanus were able to moderate the way he talks to the plebeians of Rome, he would probably wind up consul. He definitely wouldn't get banished and have to go to war against his fellow Romans. So, what gives? Why can't Coriolanus just let it go? Here's Roy Tao, a professor of political science at Brooklyn College. His problem with the people is that they're always changing their mind. His problem with the people is that they say they want one thing, but they don't really want it. And he's coming uh, from the perspective of someone who's been a soldier all his life, not just a soldier, but a general all his life. And you see that he is perfectly capable of being generous towards his subordinates when it comes to the matter of, you know, going into the breach, of actually fighting, you know, who, who's with me? He's capable of rallying the people. What he can't do is walk away from that and do politics. And he can't do that because democratic politics is filled with public rituals meant to demonstrate that our leader's job is to serve the voters. Coriolanus doesn't really believe in these rituals, and he doesn't believe he should have to serve people he considers his inferiors. He doesn't want to take part in the pancake breakfasts and rope line handshakes of ancient Rome. He's particularly offended by the idea that he should put on an outfit that is literally called the gown of humility and make political hay out of his war wounds. Gown of humility. Yeah. This is actually where we get our word candidate from. Did you know that? Because it's a white gown that the candidate was supposed to go out from the uh, word candida, uh, meaning uh, white, white color. And he will not do this. He doesn't like to hear people praise him for his wounds. He doesn't want people to think that he was fighting in order to become politically successful. The whole idea of winning favor seems to him uh, 
cheap. It seems to him prostitution. He resents having to do that. And there is something compelling, maybe even admirable about this. We want our leaders to tell us the hard truths. And we want our leaders to do things because they think they're right, not because they're popular. Or at least, that's what we say we want. Shakespeare's already anticipated, well, one of the real problems with democracy is that people, they really want uh, someone who is better than they are, but also someone who flatters them, right? Who says, oh no, you people are great, and, and the wonderful thing about this electoral system we have is that people like you get to decide if I'm worthy, right? Which, that's the thing that Coriolanus could, can't do. It's like, he doesn't even want to be praised because his virtue is self-evident. Coriolanus wants the position of consul because it's the only honor he doesn't have. It's what's next. He doesn't really have a political platform. What he has instead is a belief that he should be in charge. This points to the other problem with basing politics on pure principle. What do you do when a politician's principles are bad? Is a politician's consistency still admirable when they're consistently terrible? Coriolanus's most deeply held belief is that the plebeians don't matter and that they shouldn't have political power. He's even okay with them starving to death. And part of how the tribunes defeat him is by goading him again and again to say this out loud. You speak of the people as if you were a god to punish, not a man of their infirmity. Twere well we let the people know it. What? What? His collar? Collar? Were I as patient as the midnight sleep, by Jove, t'would be my mind. It is a mind that shall remain a poison where it is, not poison any further. That's a threat. The tribunes are telling Coriolanus that they can keep him where he is, rather than letting him advance. He doesn't like being threatened, and he responds by declaring that the people did not deserve free corn when they were starving because they did not serve honorably in the war. Being pressed to the war, they would not thread the gates. This kind of service did not deserve corn gratis. He goes on to argue that by giving in to the people's demands, the Senate has upset the natural order of things, and soon the people will rule their social betters. Well, what then? How shall this bosom multiplied digest the Senate's courtesy? What's like to be their words? We did request it. We are the greater number, and in true fear they gave us our demands? Thus, we debase the nature of our seats and make the rabble call our cares fears, which will in time break ope the locks of the Senate and bring in the crows to peck the eagles. And finally, he asks the Roman Senate to eliminate the tribunate. Therefore, beseech you, at once pluck out the multitudinous tongue. Let them not lick the sweet which is their poison. It's only then that Coriolanus is finally banished. The tribunes have exposed his desire to limit the plebeians' rights. So is getting rid of Coriolanus, and the way they get rid of Coriolanus, good? Here's John Paul Spiro. You can see that as a heroic deed, but the the paradox is, They do this by getting rid of the only actually heroic person in Rome, 
and there's something about the the people that know that like yeah what we really want to, in order to have our interests represented is we really need kind of sniveling conniving manipulating politicians as opposed to an actually honorable person who's incapable of lying the tribunes certainly don't come across as heroic they're politicians through and through they don't appear to have an honest bone in their bodies Take that whole episode where Coriolanus doesn't want to wear the gown of humility and ask the people of Rome for their endorsement. It's the tribunes who won't let him out of that obligation. They're banking on Coriolanus losing his cool and saying something that offends the plebeians. But what actually happens is that Coriolanus grudgingly does it and the people of Rome agree to endorse him. The way the tribunes respond shows what unprincipled political geniuses they are. They convince the people to withdraw their endorsement. And here's the argument they make. Did you perceive? He did solicit you in free contempt when he did need your loves. And do you think that his contempt shall not be bruising to you when he hath power to crush? In other words... Even when he asked for your endorsement, he insulted you. It's clear that as consul, he'll take away your rights. So here's what the people should do. Lay a fault on us, your tribunes, that we labored no impediment between, but that you must cast your election on him. The tribunes tell the people to withdraw their endorsement on the grounds that they were misled. By the tribunes themselves, It's the exact opposite of what actually happened. And it works. The tribunes are inauthentic, unprincipled, and self-interested. After all, if Coriolanus comes to power, they stand to lose out because their jobs will be eliminated. But at the same time, by stopping Coriolanus from becoming consul, they wind up representing their constituents' interests. He really does want to take their free grain and political representation away. Here's theater critic Helen Shaw. You know, the tribunes say a lot of very smart stuff about Coriolanus. They say, you know, he his express wish was to crush you, and he would have crushed you, he says to the people. The tribune does. And he's right. One of the lessons of politics is believe them when they tell you who they say they are. So if a politician stands up and says, this is who I am, you cannot say to yourself, don't worry, he will not govern that way. For a man who wants to be a politician, Coriolanus does a terrible job of representing his constituency and their interests. Because representing the elite's interests would mean keeping quiet about clawing back the gains of the common people. But Coriolanus is also right about the tribunes and the effect they're having on Roman politics. And my soul aches to know when two authorities are up, neither supreme, how soon confusion may enter twixt the gap of both and take the one by the other. Before the tribunes existed, there was only one authority, the nobility. Now there are two authorities who have to struggle for political power which means, inevitably, dishonesty, ignorance, and slander will enter the political process. This double worship, where one part does disdain with cause, the other insult without all reason, where gentry, title, wisdom, cannot conclude but by the yea and no of general ignorance, 
It must omit real necessities and give way the while to unstable slightness. This dynamic, where the conflict between two parties jockeying for advantage leads to confusion, dishonesty, and bad faith, it should be pretty familiar to us. As Michael Sexton puts it, No, I don't think you can look if you take as evidence the state of American democracy at our current moment and say that anything that he describes there has not come to be. Have we ever experienced in our lifetime a moment of more unstable slightness that's generally ruled by general ignorance than the moment that we're at right now? But the alternative to that is elite rule that simply disregards the interests of anyone else. Roman politics was only harmonious at the beginning of the play if you were part of the one set of interests the Senate represented. Real politics requires conflict. It's war by other means. Yet Coriolanus, the great warrior, is particularly ill-suited to politics. If the Roman state is a body, Coriolanus's downfall demonstrates you can't just swap the parts around whenever you feel like it. Here's Helen Shaw. There is actually a line in it in which someone says about Coriolanus, he is a thing of blood. And so the problem is, the real problem with Coriolanus is that he is being sent from one part of the body to the other, and he does not belong there. He is the arms because he is a soldier, and then he is mistakenly sent to the head. (laughs) People around him try to make him into something that he isn't. Coriolanus doesn't really belong in peaceful Roman society. He fits right in instead with the Volscians, who he joins after he's banished. They're barbarians following a warlord. They're organized along the lines of martial authority. And the result of this marriage between Coriolanus and the Volscians almost dooms Rome. But even though we've grown accustomed to Coriolanus as a man of unwavering principle, it isn't principles that save Rome. It's his love of his family. He just can't bring himself to lead an army that's going to slaughter everyone he loves. But the thing that kills him is his admission of his connection to his fellow person, fellow being. The one time he has a moment of, I love you, to his wife, his mother, and his child is there at the end as well. uh, And he embraces them all and knows that he's going to die because of it. But he, he dooms himself by an act of human kindness. The great warrior, so unsuited for political leadership, discovers a humanity that destroys him. And then his body is cut to pieces. What makes Coriolanus a tragedy is Caius Martius discovering too late his own humanity. But unlike in Julius Caesar, no tragedy befalls the city of Rome. In fact, from the perspective of the Republic, the play has a happy ending. By banishing Coriolanus, the tribunes of the plebs save the Roman Republic, which goes on to last for hundreds of years and become the most powerful nation on earth. One lesson from this play is that when you're threatened by a leader, backed by the wealthy elite who wants to take away your rights, you cannot disdain the nitty-gritty movements of politics. If the government really is the belly, then it's worth keeping in mind that the digestive system is kind of disgusting. It's not a pretty place, and there's nothing pure about it. Politics in a liberal democracy can get ugly. 
There's dishonesty and fear-mongering and hypocrisy. And there's also the necessary restraint of exceptional individuals, lest they gather so much power to themselves that the government cannot stop them from doing whatever they want. The problem of charismatic individuals operating with impunity is the story of Julius Caesar, where this podcast began. And we began with that play because of the fear that our own republic was in crisis and that our institutions weren't up to the task of saving it. Coriolanus shows one way to protect a republic. It suggests that, instead of reaching towards the better angels of our nature, we should look to the example of the tribunes, who are petty, dishonest, manipulative, contemptuous of excellence, and desperate to protect and enlarge their own power. It's not a particularly inspiring vision. As we've seen throughout Lemire ears, Shakespeare was a writer too possessed by doubt to offer easy, attractive solutions to social problems. At the same time, for all its messiness and cynicism, Coriolanus's portrait of politics may be the closest thing we've found in this series to a plausible, happy ending. I'd like to thank my guests for this week's episode, Michael Sexton, John Paul Spiro, Roy Tao, and Helen Shaw. You heard Sean Williams as Menenius, Jordy Broadwater as Coriolanus, Daryl Lathan and David Rosenberg as the Tribunes, and Will Sturdivant and Henry Jenkinson as the Soldiers. Special thanks to Joe's Pub and the Public Shakespeare Initiative for putting on our live episode. Speaking of that live episode, if you're a member of Slate Plus, you have a recording of the whole thing waiting for you right now. If you're not a member of Slate Plus, what are you waiting for? Sign up at slate.com slash Shakespeare. This podcast was produced by Chow Tu. Slate Plus's editorial director is Gabriel Roth, the great toe of this assembly. I'm Isaac Butler. This is normally the time when I tell you what play we'll be covering next, but this is actually our final episode. So instead, let me say thank you again to Slate Plus for saying yes to this podcast and supporting it every step of the way as it developed over the last year. Thank you to the scholars and friends who let me talk their ear off as I was trying to figure it all out. And thank you so much for listening.